just to remind everyone that our citizenship is in heaven. Our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. We live in America, and I think we all feel blessed to live here, myself included. But this is not our primary citizenship, nor should it be our primary allegiance. I like to have us focus on the fact that we are citizens of the kingdom first and foremost, and not in an anti-America way at all or any stress of the imagination, but I try to train the people to think in those terms. I try to train us to think that we are part of a monarchy under King Jesus, and that's where our first allegiance lies. If you think that way, it kind of helps you take the events, the political ebbs and flows of the day with a grain of salt and not get so shaken by them, knowing that we're actually serving the one who's reigning on his throne right now beside the father's right hand. And that helps to put things in perspective. I try to lead by not getting worked up about the things that are going on. Welcome, my friend. This is the weekend edition of the Coaching for Pastors podcast. Hey, Pastor, it's good to be with you this weekend. This is weekend edition number 26. You know what that means. It's been six months now. Every single weekend, we've been able to put out a weekend edition episode. We've had some great guests, some great conversations, and just some down-to-earth pastoral wisdom for you. And that's exactly what I have today for you I have told you that I got in touch with one of the pastors in town, oh, about four or five months ago, and through the spring and into the summer and now into the fall, we've been walking in the afternoons, and we have put in scores and scores of miles together. We meet at Maytag Park. Interesting thing about my town, my town is the hometown of the Maytag Corporation. In fact, old man Maytag's buried out in the cemetery and the Maytag family is here. Now Maytag sold out to Whirlpool and they moved all their operations to, I think, Michigan about 12 years ago. So they're not around anymore here in town, but there's Maytag Park, beautiful park in the middle of town. He and I meet there in the afternoons. Now, Aaron, Pastor Aaron is my guest on today's episode. I met with him at his church in his office area, in his conference room for this recording. It was the first time I'd been to his church building and we've been walking together for months and months. And this is interesting. We were both, we both had street clothes on, you know, our pastor clothes or whatever we wear every day. And we sat at his conference table and it seemed weird. Because the only time I've been spending with him has been out at Maytag Park and along the trail that goes along the highway and outside in the sunshine and and sweating it out and getting some exercise. That's our context for our relationship. And to sit in a church building seemed weird to me. And the fact that it seemed weird to me seemed weird to me because I wasn't expecting it. But he and I have really developed our friendship outside, getting exercise together, enjoying uh, the beauty of nature, and it's been just a fantastic thing. So if, if, again, I could encourage you, hey, look in your community. He and I have been in town together for five years, and for four and a half of those years, we really haven't spoken to each other except for a few times. And this is a friendship of encouragement and inspiration, building each other up that we could have had the whole time. 
and we didn't. So I want to encourage you, look around your community. I bet there's a pastor within 30 minutes of you that you could develop a good relationship with, and it will be encouraging to you. You know, you hear my voice, some schmuck on the other end of the podcast. You hear my voice, but I don't know you like personally, right? We, we can't sit down for, for coffee or, or meet for lunch. Find somebody with skin in your community that you can sit down and have lunch with or that you could go out to the park and walk with or you can meet somewhere and do something with. We need that stuff, Pastor. So I, I just want to encourage you in that. Now, this conversation is about Pastor Aaron, who has six children, whose whose uh, church suffered uh, fire damage this uh, the past couple of years, and they were out of their building for months on end, who also finished a, a graduate degree and then led his church through uh, what I termed as the ministry maelstrom of 2020. A lot of stuff going on in his life, uh, not the least of which those six kids, which I don't know why I think that's so many. I have four. That's just two more. But two more is a lot more, I think. But he's got just just great kids, a great family. This is a great conversation. It was for me. And it was especially encouraging to me. As I listened back on it and edited it, it was really a lot of fun. So I know you're going to enjoy this. I'm not going to bother to come on at the end. I'm just going to let it roll and take from it what you will. There's a lot to take. And, uh, Pastor, I will see you again after this episode. I'll see you on Monday. Here's my conversation with Aaron Gonzalez. Aaron Gonzalez, welcome to the Coaching for Pastors podcast. Thank you for having me. You are the one that I got together with earlier this year, and we started walking. And we have walked, if we've walked three miles each time, how many times have we walked? Maybe 20, 25? Oh, I think more than that. Don't more you? than that? I think I, so. Boy, I have no idea. So we've probably walked 100 miles together. Yeah. And gotten to know each other. Yeah, but we have. So you're an interesting person. So just briefly introduce yourself to our listeners, just to give us a context of who you are and what you do. Okay, my name is Aaron Gonzalez. I am 51 years old and pastoring a Christian Reformed church in my hometown. My wife and I are both from here, and a congregation of about oh, maybe a hundred or so, give and take, on a Sunday. I was ordained in 2019, but I was serving here as the pastor in an unordained capacity starting in 2009, November 1, 2009. So I'm almost at 13 years. That's that's the brief story. So an unordained capacity. So it took you 10 years, almost 10 years to get ordained. What did you have to do in order to be ordained? In the Christian Reformed Church, you almost always need to have an MDiv in order to be ordained. There are exceptions, but there aren't many of them. And in my situation, an exception was not going to happen. So for 10 years, I worked on the MDiv through Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. And since it was not Calvin Theological Seminary, which is my denomination's seminary, okay. there was additional work I had to do that is meant to orient you to the culture of the CRC, the polity and history of the CRC. So I did that in conjunction with that at the same time. Yeah, because 10 years, I mean— Forgive me, but 10 years seems like a long time to be working on an MDiv. 
It was. I, it didn't have to be I 10 mean, years. I mean, I'm not saying you're slow or anything on the uptake on that, but... Uh. Yeah, well, you know, it'd been a long time since I'd been in school. I had to kind of figure out things again, remember how to read and all that. There you go. But no, it's uh, it was a, an at-your-own-pace thing, and being a full-time pastor, I found that's pretty much the pace I needed to go at okay. to, to do to do everything I needed to do well. You know, so it's at your own pace. So you weren't you weren't necessarily in a class with other people. I was for part of it. So okay. with the distance MDiv, you do two thirds as distance education and one third on campus. So twice a year for three years, I flew down to Orlando, which was a big sacrifice in the winter. And I'm sure, I'm sure. It getting was. out of Iowa was really tough in the winter. And uh, I would spend basically for a, for a week, and on one occasion, two weeks, I spent uh, time in the classroom basically from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Okay. It, with, with a lot of the same students. So for those three years, a lot of us were doing the same thing and taking the same classes. So there was a little cohort that you were a part of, but it wasn't like being a residential student. Okay. So interesting, you were 41 then. No, 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 you were you were younger. You were thirty eight, late thirties, late late thirties. I don't late remember 30s. exactly how old. Yeah, okay. And you had an undergrad degree from somewhere. Yeah, I did. The University of Northern Iowa, an English degree. Okay. I probably should have mentioned that I actually have a, a family too with kids and and all of that. And <laughs> a part of all of my responsibilities was also just being a husband and a father too, and trying to balance all of that. Yeah, so, so interesting. We've been walking for months now, and I didn't realize. How many children you have? So, so talk about that. We have six children. Uh, the oldest is almost twenty six years old. In December, he'll be twenty six, and uh, then a twenty four year old, a twenty almost twenty two year old. Uh, then I have an eighteen year old who just graduated um, just this last spring from high school, and then still in high school, I have a sixteen year old and a fourteen year old, a junior and a freshman. The junior is my only daughter, so I have five sons, one daughter. Okay, so that's pretty busy, and you were also able to pastor a church and get your master's degree and the additional certifications for the CRC. Yes. Yeah, so what was the hardest thing about being a dad, having a growing family, you know, you have a full-time job, but you're doing school as well? The hardest thing in that whole process, I would say, is as those weeks approached when I had to go to campus, the classes you took were called hybrid classes. So mm -hmm. most of the work was done on campus, but there was work you had to do offsite too. Yep. And that had to be done before and it had to be done after. So as those weeks approached and I had all of that work to do plus sermon prep and all of that, um, there was a time uh, a couple weeks out, two, three weeks out where I would just, Cami and I, my wife's name is Cami. I would just tell her we're at that time now. And, you know, I just may not be home very much because I've got papers to work on. If I had a distance course, I was finishing up. But I've, if nothing else, I have all the prep work leading up to being on campus, plus sermon prep and just other stuff that goes with being a pastor. And uh, it was a real, the intense time wasn't just while I was on campus. It was a few weeks before and a few weeks after. Yeah. And I was just hardly ever home on, on those weeks. You would work in your office. Yep. Okay, now let me ask you, was it worth it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was worth it for, uh, well, it was worth it because it's, one, what I needed to do, and I really wanted to be able to serve here as the ordained pastor. It was 
kind of an odd situation, but um, the church worked with me. Our classes, which I know you know what that means, but let me just briefly explain that. The classes in the CRC is just a regional body of churches that are geographically kind of related. They're close to each other. And uh, the classes has a say in on some level in when a church is calling a pastor or doing something like that. And uh, my situation was unique because I didn't have an MDiv and we needed help from the classes. We needed support from the classes. And on some levels, we needed permission from the classes to do mm. this. And uh, every step of the way, we got nothing but support and help from the classes. So um, that work all needed to be done. Remind me the question here. I kind of lost track. Oh, the question was, what, what was it worth it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Was it worth it? Yeah, yeah. And, and let me add to that. How are you different? because of this MDiv and the process of the MDiv. Like if you had never done it and you just stuck with ministry work, like how are you different because of it? Uh, more well-rounded because of it. I have relationships that I would not have had if I hadn't done that. Okay. A lot of real close friendships with students that I had, close friendships with professors that I had. My Old Testament and Hebrew prof came up from Orlando to Newton, Iowa, to preach at my installation ceremony. So he's my professor. He still is. I consider him a friend. So I'm thankful for that as well. Um, but just the the training, you know, the, the additional training that I would not have had um, that I got through, you know, in, in counseling, in biblical languages, in systematic theology, and, and all of those different categories, it just um, equipped me, I think, to be a pastor in a way that I would not have been equipped otherwise. So you were 38 years old. When I went back for my master's, I was 47. My oldest had just graduated from college, and I felt like you know my kids were a little bit older, and I was at the point where I didn't want to get too much older you know, without getting a master's degree, and I wanted to have some time to you know benefit and use it. But you were 38 with six kids, I mean, there's really not any pastor out there who could say that they're any busier in their life than you would have been then, right in the middle of raising six kids. How old was your youngest child? He was just born pretty yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My youngest was born in 2008, and I started in 2009. So that sound, it sounds ridiculous. So, you're, Pastor, you're listening, and you're, you're like, well, I don't have a master's degree. I'm a little busy. I've got too many things going on. What you're saying, uh, Aaron, it sounds ridiculous that you have you just have your sixth kid and you tell your wife, yeah, I think I need a master's degree. Well, you actually did need the master's degree for your calling, and if you hadn't have needed it, you may not have gone back. Are you glad that you did go back, not just for the requirement of it, but for the process of it? I am, and there's actually a little more to that story too, which I'm not sure if we've talked about on our walks. But uh, in 1996, I decided then, and this this was kind of a long road of many different pastors encouraging me to to go to seminary to become a pastor, to go into vocational ministry. And in 1996, I decided that it was time for me to do that, and I applied at RTS Orlando same seminary that I ended up in this time, and got accepted and went down. And 
the problem is I had kind of romanticized the whole thing. It was like, this is what I need to be doing. This is what I should be doing. And it was, I hadn't really counted the cost. There's God's calling. And then there's our responsibilities. And those two should align and you should listen. And sometimes that has to do with timing and wisdom and listening to your wife and stuff like that. And a lot of that I didn't do. And I got us into a situation that was really financially untenable. And we ended up going down to Orlando, stayed there for 10 days and moved back. Oh, wow. Because I could see what I had done once I got there. Because I have romanticized seminary, I didn't see it until I got there and got in the midst of living in Orlando, Florida, which is very different from living in Newton, Iowa. The cost of things, we homeschool our kids. We only had one at the time, but I knew I did not want Cammy to be working full time while I was going to school. And there's just a lot of factors I didn't consider. I hadn't I hadn't properly gone about talking to the churches that were a part of my life up to that time to look to seek support or anything like that. And uh, I, I got us in over our heads. And so kind of with my tail between my legs, I came back to Newton, Iowa hmm. and just started working elsewhere. And our family grew and we were homeschooling. And before I knew it, I was in a family situation where I didn't even see it as possible to go to seminary. And in my mind, I pretty much gave up on being a pastor. Then, um, doing kind of, uh, again, unordained, uh, more associate pastor type stuff in a church that I was a part of. I got a call from someone here at this church, a friend of mine, um, saying that they want to, to hire an interim pastor because the pastor here had just stepped down. Was I interested? I said, sure. And uh, a few months after I started, they hired me. A few months after I uh, took that position, the search committee came to the leadership here and said, is there a way to make Aaron our pastor if he's interested? They talked to me. I was interested. And that's what started the conversation with classes. And then the very thing that I had given up on 10 years before, maybe more, I can't even remember exactly, all of a sudden became possible because of the situation I was in, because of technology, frankly, with the distance MDiv, there were no distance MDivs before online capacity and and all of that. Right, yeah, that's true. And uh, so all of a sudden, things fell into place, and I was no longer faced with a situation where to go to seminary, I would have to leave and move and go someplace to do that um, and probably have my wife work you know, so that, so that we could be financially supported while I did that, all the things we didn't want to do because we were homeschooling our kids, all of a sudden that didn't matter. It was possible to do it without doing all of those things. So was it worth it? Yeah. It was like, it was like the thing that I had let go of finally and just said, that's fine. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Uh, I'm just going to do what I know I need to do and work and take care of my family and serve God in whatever capacity he has for me. It was kind of like it felt like a situation where I I showed that I could be trusted with a little, and then he trusted me with more. And mm-hmm. so it was a gift. And the whole situation was ridiculous, the way that it worked out so well. So, yeah, I, I had to do it. it. It was what had been served yeah. up to me. And so I'm thankful for that, and I benefited from that, and I get to serve this church that I wanted to be a part of. So Yeah. You didn't know that that ride was going to come back around for you. No, no clue. So Aaron, what is your strength? What are you known for around here? What are you good at? What would you say, yeah, this is the thing that I do well here? 
Well, that list is virtually endless, Jeff. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, so one of the first things in, in terms of just feedback from the congregation that I got was just the way I teach from the Bible. I do not consider myself a great preacher. Like you're not going to see any preaching books authored by Aaron Gonzalez, I don't think. Okay. But I approach the scriptures as the scriptures and I've had a lot of feedback on just the way that I teach and make the scriptures relatable, yes, but also just holding their authority out there for us mm-hmm. as as our only rule for faith and practice. And I preach maybe portions of the scriptures that others maybe don't. I, I love the Old Testament. I love even some of the odd stories of the Old Testament. So um, I think people got uh, reminded of stories that maybe they'd forgotten about or hadn't read in a while and maybe had never heard preached. So that was one thing um, just in in preaching here, in my preaching ministry. I'm a musician. I guess that's a fair thing. I play the drums. Our praise team, I'm the drummer on that. So on the Sundays mm-hmm. when we play, I start the service, lead the service, give the greeting, welcome everybody, and then I slip from the pulpit over to the behind the drums and join the rest of the praise team in leading uh, the songs at that point. Are those Sundays harder for you or not really? They, Yeah, a little bit, but I'm getting used to it. It's It's... It can be an odd transition to, yeah. to move from worship leading in, in the sense of behind the pulpit to just slipping over and then playing the drums and then having to put the pastor hat back on and move back over and continue with the service. And sometimes I feel like I have enough to to be getting on with, with yeah. just my pastoral duties. Right. And then throwing in these, the other thing can be a little bit... Uh, of, a, of whiplash on a Sunday morning. Well, my worship pastor has told me he will never lead worship and also preach because I ask him, hey, can you preach? And no, 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 I'm I'm scheduled. I'm leading worship that day, so I can't preach that day. I can understand that. E- each one requires something of you. you. It takes energy to do both of those. Di- it's different kind of energy. It is, it is. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes it doesn't feel compatible to do both of them. And part of it, this is a, I don't know, maybe a silly thing, but I come in early on Sunday mornings and I do my service prep. I go over my sermon one more time. But on those Sundays when the praise team is playing, I also have to go down and rehearse with the praise team. So it just throws one more thing onto my Sunday morning that I often don't feel like I have time to do. But then I hear the comments of the people, uh, and I don't mean just about me, but that they appreciate us and they appreciate having us lead music and that reminds me that it's worth it and I can just deal with it. So I was think we were talking earlier down in your auditorium about what you've been through here at the church in the last few years. As we sit here, I don't remember how one impacts the other. I know that there's a lot has gone on in all of our lives in the last three years. You had a situation with your building. Was that before or during COVID? It was before. It was at the beginning of 2019. It was either January or February. I can't remember. Was it all resolved by the time COVID hit? It was. So, um, so, so you had it all ready, but you couldn't use it. Yeah. Well, there was a little, there was a, a gap of time in there. So in early 2019, we had a fire in our church. Very small fire, hardly any structural damage, but massive smoke damage. Um, everything in the church had to be taken out and cleaned. All the walls, all the surfaces had to be cleaned. All the carpet had to be pulled up and tossed and replaced. And that whole process to get us back into our church was a six-month process. 
So almost exactly six months, six months later, I believe in August, we got back into our church. A few months later, the first rumblings of COVID started okay. being talked about overseas, you know? Right, right. And then before long, we were in the thick of it so along with you, everyone else. So you had a few months in the building when everything was remodeled, repainted, new carpet, and all of that before y'all y'all had to leave the building. Yes. Again. Yep. And the first time when you had to leave the building, where did you meet? For the fire? When we had the yeah. fire, you mean? Yeah. Uh, we rented the, the, the gym or the auditorium at the Christian School here in Newton okay. for our worship services. Okay. And then we rented office space at... Uh, an office building over just north of the railroad tracks, if you know where that yep. is. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So what was the challenge with this fire situation that was here? What What were some of the things that were really challenging having to deal with that? Um, this is going to maybe sound like a, not a cop out, but maybe unbelievable, but it's hard for me to say what, that there were even any challenges because I mean, so the challenges we're dealing with all the people you have to deal with when you have a, an incident like that, insurance company and the cleaners and all of that. But as a church, even though we had the, the setback or the obstacle of not being able to be in our building, we actually grew during those six months that we were out of our building. Hmm. We, we added members, we had baptisms, and in a way, the church, the crisis caused the church to come together yeah. in a way that, I mean, it's not like we were, there was no big problem, but it just, it, it almost fostered a community in a, in a way or a level of community that wasn't there beforehand. And so I'm not thankful that we had a fire, but there were some benefits of it. The, the, even though it was a crisis and a headache, a lot of good came about through it as well. And I think we grew closer together as a body. So I'm wondering, did the body draw closer together in crisis because of who they were and how they were and what the culture was when the crisis hit, or how much of it was impacted by leadership's handling of the crisis and the attitude in which you moved everybody into a new place and tried to set a tone and set expectations and maybe set perspective? on what was going on, you know, how much of it was pre-fire and how much of it was post-fire leadership? Some of both, for sure. Um, there were already good things happening and events that we were doing, ministry opportunities, outreach events, where people were already coming together for a common goal. Um, there were many of those. But our leaders stepped up in a, a very impressive way as, as well. And Every time I would think of something that probably should be being done in that initial panic period of what are we going to do, where are we going to meet, I would find out that it was already being done. Hmm. And there were just people stepping in and doing what needed to be done. And before I knew it, we had the Christian school, uh, an agreement with them to use their space on Sundays. We had a rental agreement at this office space. And before I knew it, we were moving uh, we were working with the cleaners who took everything out of our church, and they were working hard to clean 
those things that we were prioritizing and saying, we need to have these things as soon as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. So they were doing their smoke mitigation and getting us some books back, getting us some equipment back, our, our, our instruments, our, our musical instruments so that we could have music in the service and all of that. Our, our P a simple PA system that we had. That sounds like a big, huge mess. It was, and, and it would have been, I mean, it, yes, it was, but in my memory, I don't, I don't remember experiencing it as a mess. Headache, <laughs> headache, sure. But because so many people stepped up and filled all these gaps that needed to be filled, yeah. I just look back on it as a good experience and I, all in all, and I think almost everyone here does as well. What would have made it not a good experience? In other words, you were who you were on the day of the fire, but then what kind of behavior from leadership would have pretty much guaranteed this is going to be this is going to be a tough situation and people are discouraged. People have kind of lost hope. People are maybe starting to peel away because they don't want to meet in some gym somewhere. Like what were some things that they did that were really helpful specifically? Let me start with one of the things they didn't do. There was no sense of competing agendas. No one was vying to be the one in charge. No one was vying to be the one that got credit for good decisions or good outcomes or anything like that. It was just a working together. Another thing that was done is when there were a lot of decisions that became, that were delegated. And yes, leadership needs to be in the loop, but leadership doesn't have to make every single decision. So the stereotypical, uh, the, the anecdotal story of the church split is the color of paint in the nursery, right? Mm -hmm. or, or the carpet. Mm -hmm. We had a whole church building they needed new carpet, new paint, new uh, cu no, new cushions for our pews, new everything. Some of which is those stereotypical things. New, that, new interior decorating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And leadership said, "You uh, who are gifted in this," and it was honestly a lot of our wives, but not just our wives, and we just kind of let them do what needed to be done. And, and leadership wasn't trying to micromanage that. Hmm. Um, provided a little direction from time to time. They would come to us with some options and say, what do you like of these? These are what we like. What do you think? But I don't think we, I don't think we ever said to them, we know this is what you like, but it's not what we like. So we want to do this instead. It just worked. And no one was jockeying for position. And I think that was a big part of it. Well, I've never been in the building, and we were just downstairs, and it's beautiful. I Thank think you. it's so pleasant, so inviting and warm without any of the harsh 70s and 80s colors. That's what was there before. <laughs> and, and maybe not harsh, but do you remember the rose color with the teal and all oh, of that that oh, was yes. big? That's what was there before. Oh, yeah. So we are thankful sometimes when we have these kinds of things. Yeah. So So now let's move a couple months further. Yep. What was the uh what was the response of the people? And I don't, I don't know any of this. So I'm I'm legit asking you these. I haven't known any questions answered any questions I've asked you yet, I don't think. Was there like, "Oh, no, not again. Oh, we have to leave our building again." What was the attitude of the people at the beginning of that? With COVID? Yeah. It was a different deal with that. And I'll probably try to be a little more careful <laughs> um in the telling of this, but as you know, but um, why? 
Why, Aaron? I don't yeah. understand. None of us pastors understand this. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> the problem with COVID is that it wasn't just COVID. It took place in an election year, and that mm. flavored things. Okay. So that's you know I don't want to be careful. I want to be as uh, I want to be gracious. But unlike the deal with the fire, we did run into competing ideas. You mm. know, and um, I'll stop short of saying agendas. But it was a situation that was brand new to all of us. Nobody knew what was going on, and nobody quite knew how seriously to take it. Right. You know, at the beginning, I'm talking about March, maybe of yeah. 2020. Yeah. But we did consult with um, a couple of doctors. We being the leaders, made the decision, made some decisions early on. And in Iowa, as you know, there came a point where our governor issued the shutdown. As a council, as the leaders of this church, we actually made that decision on our own before she made that decision. The thing is, the night we made that decision, by the time we got up the next morning, she had made that decision. Okay. So the timing was very, very close, but the conversations we had had with medical professionals that we know convinced us that we need to take this seriously enough that for right now we need to just do a brief shutdown and see what happens. And so we did. And then Iowa went through the, what was it? A two month shutdown or something like that. Basically March to May. Something Something like that. Yeah. And then we came back and when we did, um, you know, we had the every other pew thing going on, but what we actually started doing was having our services out in the parking lot. Okay. And we had some people who would set up a sound system out there, bring out the piano and, kind of a little, a riser for me to be on. And that worked really well. And then we got feedback from our neighbors in it because our church is located right in the middle of a neighborhood. And we heard a lot from a lot of people saying that they were glad we were doing that because they would just sit outside and listen to our services. Someone told us they would get, it was really hot at that time in the summer when we were doing this and they would go out and get in their swimming pool and listen to our services. (laughs) They never asked us to join them, I noticed, though. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. So you were in the summer, you were outside, and then at some point you came back in. Yeah, well, we would come inside if weather didn't allow us to be outside. And on one of those times inside, it was uh, that, that following week, a bunch of us, like pushing 20 of us, all tested positive, all got COVID that next week, okay. myself included. That particular um, hit of COVID hit the church pretty hard. We lost a member because of that and had a couple others in intensive care um, who, who, oh, made wow. it, who made it through, but it was close. It, it was not a good situation. Yeah. So um, I, think, I think a lot of people at that time felt like maybe it wasn't going to be the thing that we were told it was going to be. But when that hit, that kind of opened our eyes to just how serious it could be. And so we began some stricter measures and that's probably when things got a little more dicey for us as a church. Then when we, that's when we really started experiencing the impact of different ideas of, mm-hmm. of how this should be dealt with, um, how serious it is. And of course, by that time, you're only a couple of months out from the election and everything is intensifying. Right. All the talk, all the, all the, you know, just rancor. Yeah. Just the whole situation is yeah. becoming more and more volatile. And, and unfortunately um, we went through a rough time then because of just as all of that just came to a, an unfortunate crescendo. So then we hit 2021 and now we're most of the way through 2022. At what point, what season did it stop? 
did it kind of settle into what it was going to be? I would say probably by around summertime. It's hard for me to remember exactly, but maybe summertime of 2021, things started to feel a little bit more normal, as, especially as hospitalizations were coming down. It appeared that the, the seriousness of COVID infections, because by that time people were having their second round of COVID if they'd had it before. I didn't, but I, I did get it again. And it was nothing like the first time. And mm. so people, hospitalizations coming down, people on ventilators coming down, those types of things that we've all seen going on where, yes, it's still out there. It appears it's going to be, but it does not seem to be hitting as hard, these later variants. And as that happened, I think that put people a little bit more at ease. And uh, I think things felt a little bit more normal in that sense. But there are people who were here before COVID who are not here anymore. Some because of uh, we had a couple of COVID deaths, two or three, but we also hit in that same time. In 2020, I think it was a dozen funerals that, that we did that, or that I did that year in our church. And for a church of about 120, a dozen people is about 10% of your membership, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so that was a hard hit too. And that was just things just kind of coming together at the same time that it didn't necessarily have to do with COVID, but... We, uh, when I came here, there was already a large elderly population and you just know at some point, you know, you're dealing with end of life things and, right. and that hit us, that hit our church in a big way in 2020. So there's that. And we didn't have many of those people and some other people had left through the course of, of COVID and everything. And so coming out of COVID, we wanted to get back into doing all the same things we were doing before, but you have some different people. You have the absence of some gifts and talents that were here before. And so it just changes how you do certain things that you were doing before. And in some cases, it makes you face the question of, can we even do these things anymore? Because hmm. some of the people who were instrumental in doing them aren't here. And maybe we're passionate about it. Yes. Yep. That yeah. too. Yep. And so that's that's... I would say that is, if there's something that's still ongoing from COVID, it's that. It's still, to a certain degree, getting our feet underneath us and, and just really going through the discernment process again of who is this body? Who, what are the gifts? What are the interests? Can we do some of the things we were doing before? Can't we? If we do, what do we need to do different? Because we're not quite the same church body that we were before. I want to go back one more time just to look at the difference between how your church handled the fire and how they handled 2020. So I'm looking at the differences being ideology and political. Some of those differences are political. Yep. And even the differences that would be maybe healthcare related got folded into the political so that you weren't really just talking about healthcare or opinion on processing through a crisis, you it ended up getting political. But the fire had no political overtones to it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what that says, but it says something it, that you could go through. Literally, your whole building gets smoked out, and everybody handles it just fine. They all come together. They, they get it done. 
And then you've got from the outside, like your building is fine. Your personal stuff is all fine. But from the outside, you've got this danger. And yet we didn't come together. Got any thoughts on that? I mean, I'm just kind of... I, I have lots of thoughts on that, but I'm not sure if it's the kind of content you're going for here. Well, I, oh, well, I can edit out anything. But, you know, another thing I was going to ask you was uh, how how vocal were you and how um, direct were you in your leadership through that time? You said there are some people that aren't here anymore that were here before 2020. You were vocal and direct in your leadership through... Uh, the building getting damaged and being ousted from the building for six months. And you were, I assume, somewhat vocal and direct in your leadership on 2020. But how are they different? Because we're all yeah. processing through this. Right. And pastors listening, I think, this, yeah. is, the, this is the coaching part. Okay. Well, let, so let me, let me give a little, just, just so that um, there's an understanding of, you know, every, different churches have different polities. In, in my church... I am not the lone, you know, I'm not the out, I'm the out front leader in the sense that I'm the pastor, but in terms of the council, I'm one of a group of nine who is making these decisions, elders, deacons, and then me as the pastor. And so I don't have the authority to make unilateral decisions about what our policies are going to be. That's done, that's done by a council. That's helpful to know. Yeah. So it was never really my call to make. I was a voice among many in making the decisions we made. But as was pointed out to me on occasion, um, the pastor's voice sometimes tends to be a voice and a half or maybe two Mm -hmm. voices or something like that. Um, So there was that reality and I get that, but this wasn't a bully pulpit kind of a thing. These were decisions that were made in around this table that you and I are sitting at right now. And uh, um, so there's, there's that, that's kind of the, the polity reality of, of what I was in the midst of. So what the decisions we made, um, you're dealing with in, in a fire, you're dealing with something that has no agenda. You're dealing with something that just simply is, and it was a complete mystery how it happened. That would be a different story, but we kind of know how it happened, but we don't understand why it was able to happen. But that's a different story hmm. too, that I don't know okay. if you want to get into that, but that sounds very mysterious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll just put it this way. The fire inspector, the independent fire inspector that was hired by our insurance yes. company. When I, when he, in, he wanted to interview some of us and when he left, he basically said, I don't think we'll ever know exactly what happened here. But he was convinced it was nothing nefarious, but he said, I, I think that we're not going to know for sure exactly what happened. Hmm. But we can narrow it down to a couple of possibilities, but none of them quite make sense. But it's the, oh, it's the, really? it's the best we could do. It's a, it's, was he able to finish his conversation and interview with you? Aaron, <laughs> it's possible he's buried under the stage. No, 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 no. It's legitimately. It was. It really is a head scratcher. Okay, and I'll tell you that story sometime on one of our walks, okay. and then you can decide if it's worth recording. How about uh, that? But, I shall wait with great interest. Yes, but at any rate, uh, in that situation, um, you know, it just didn't have the it didn't carry with it the stress level. It didn't really lend itself to agendas and competing ideas the way that COVID did. I mean, from the beginning, you know, it was all over every, 
every, you couldn't turn on the TV, you couldn't listen to the radio, you couldn't have a conversation without mm. people giving their opinions yeah. on something they knew very little about. And so that was a part of it. All of a sudden, everybody was an expert on viruses and everyone was an immunologist or whatever, you know, all of a sudden everybody knew everything. And, and it was, uh, what you knew was suspiciously, um, suspiciously correlated with your, uh, political identity or, you know, mm. your, and that's just the reality of it. It's what we all faced. It's what we all in some, on some level still are dealing with though, thankfully at a lesser level. Although here we are in another, in an, in another election year, not yeah. a presidential election year, but it's still out there, right? So um, it just lent itself to personalities and agendas um, and the carelessness, I would, I would characterize it as the carelessness of what political discourse has become. And that became a part of discourse within the church too. And that's one of the reasons why I think COVID was so destructive within the church is because the tactics on the outside got brought inside. I think, I think another thing that came along with this for whatever reason, and I'm not going to try to speculate why, but it almost seems inherent in, in what happened with COVID too, was just a lack of trust where there had been trust before and it was just unspoken and everybody took it for granted. Somehow there just wasn't with, with COVID and decisions mm. that needed to get made. And I don't want to suggest that it didn't go both ways. You know, it did, you know, there was action and reaction and trust. And then, you know, a response of lack of trust. And it just kind of became a mess. It, it was, it was definitely was not the church at its best. Are you doing anything in anticipation of this fall or two years from this fall so that things might be different in the church family and the life of the church, given the fact that things could socially again heat up and there could be conflict, you know, in the public square? Not specifically, I don't think, but one of the things I, um, I don't make this my personal agenda, but the people in my church know where I'm coming from on this. I go out of my way when I deem it necessary and appropriate from the passage of scripture that I'm preaching from, or if it's a topic I'm teaching on in a study, just to remind everyone that our citizenship is in heaven. Our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Uh, we live in America and I think we're all, we all feel blessed to live here and myself included, but this is not our primary citizenship, nor should it be our primary allegiance. I like to have us focus on the fact that we are citizens of the kingdom first and foremost, and not in an anti-America way at, at all or any stress of the imagination, but I try to train the people to think in those terms. I try to train us to think that we are part of a monarchy under King Jesus, and that's where our first allegiance lies. And so if you think that way, it kind of helps you take the events of the day the political ebbs and flows uh, with a grain of salt and not get yeah. so shaken by them, knowing that we're actually serving the one who's reigning on his throne right now beside the father's right hand. And that helps to put things in perspective. And I try to lead by not getting worked up about the things that are going on. Before we land the plane, I just want to ask you a quick question about life and uh, family and ministry balance. You've got six kids. That's a lot of kids to be raising 
and it's just a thing that pastors can sometimes become workaholics, and their churches sometimes can demand a lot from them. What has been the thing that's helped you the most to keep that ministry and family balance? And have you? And how successful have you been? Well, not perfectly, obviously, but um, I have a close relationship with my kids. They like doing things with me. I just went to a concert up in St. Paul with two of my kids last week. They wanted to go with their dad to this concert. We've gone to movies together. Was it a Christian concert, Aaron? <laughs> it was not. It was the oh. it, it was the Killers. If you've ever heard of that band, oh, the Killers. That it, sounds. It sounds like spiritual. a Christian band. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the guitarist for the Killers is a friend of mine. He used to. Okay. He, he was an usher in my wedding. I used to be in a band with him. He's from Pella, just down the road from here, and uh, he kind of made it big uh, in the in the rock music industry. So. We go to his concerts, the Killers concerts, when when we can. I, I happen to like their music too. I'm an old rock and roll guy. Went to a Kiss concert when I was six years old. Oh my word! That's where it all started for me. That was where it all started going downhill, Jeff. So, so you and this guy and the Killers, you guys are probably pyros together. When you were younger, <laughs> you used to like to light fires and watch things burn. No, that, well, yes, I did because because <laughs> I used to light fireworks with my dad for the city and for the Newton Country Club when it existed. So, but so yeah. you went to a concert with your kids. Yeah. So I'll, I I do lots of things with my kids. I'm I'm their dad, but. We're friends too. We have fun doing things together. So that's always been the case. It was always important to me that that is the case. And because of that, I kind of came into vocational ministry with a predisposition to not uh, sacrifice my relationship with my kids. Uh, Mm. the, The calling demands certain things of me. And there are times where my family had to just be second. And that's just the way it was. And they understood that. Maybe not always, and I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure that I always made the right decisions in that either. But they knew that they were uh, that important part of my life as my kids, and we, you know, we fish together, we mushroom hunt together, we hunt together, turkey mainly. Um, we do all kinds of things together, and I was never going to let that not be a part of my relationship with my kids. They knew that. Uh, the church knows that. I think they have appreciated that. And maybe this is just because I'm from this town too. But um, as we sit here, you can see all of these pictures of previous ministers here. The average time that each one was here is about four years. I've been here almost 13 now, and they know and have known that I'm not looking to go anywhere else. Cami hmm. and I, for various reasons, feel anchored to Newton by family, by responsibilities and stuff. And uh, they know that we're not looking to go someplace else. And we, uh, I'm the pastor of this church, but we're members of this church, and this is our church. And uh, one time after a service, uh, one of the elder members uh, who is not here anymore, uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he was always one of the first ones downstairs uh, after the service, coming down out of the sanctuary to the foyer where I greet people. And he was always one of the first ones down. And he said to me one day, you know what I like about you, Aaron? And I said, no, I don't, Ralph, what? He said, you're one of us. Hmm. And that's what I think they sense from me. Yes, because I'm from Newton and have family here, but also because they know that I feel like I'm a part of this church and I'm not, I'm not really looking to the next call or the next 
job or whatever. And I'm not saying anything, there's nothing wrong with taking another call. I'm not trying to suggest that, but that's not what I want to do. I feel called to this church. This is where I want to be. And they know that. And I think they appreciate that. And it has, uh, um, it's just created a good relationship between me as pastor and the rest of the church as the congregation. And they, they trust me and I trust them. And so if I go and do something with my kids, there's no one calling up the elders and saying, hey, shouldn't Aaron be at the church doing something instead of going up to St. Paul with his kids? Because they trust me and they know I'm here for them and and uh, bringing them yeah. the sermons every Sunday and all of that. So there's just a mutual trust there. That's good. I like that. Hey, in order to enhance this uh, spiritual end to the uh, this episode, I'm just wondering about maybe you mushroom hunt and you use the mushrooms to enhance your concert experience at the Killers concert? Maybe that's what the shrooms are for? I don't know. I, I clearly need to get you out hunting morel mushrooms and, and then eating them so you will understand that that is, oh, not, the the mushrooms. That is not the effect of morel mushrooms. They're not so. the psychedelic they are mushrooms, not. Killers concert mushrooms? Nope, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> not a bad idea, though. <laughs> hey, one last word for pastors who are listening who may be discouraged, uh, may be confused, may be wondering, you know, man, this world is kind of going crazy. We're, we're talking about tactical nuclear weapons over in Russia and, you know, Iran, they're, they're, they're rioting in the streets because women want to have some freedom. And you, you can hardly go to a place on the planet right now that isn't some kind of craziness, right, to our own communities what do you have to say that would be a word of encouragement to pastors who are leading their churches in this global age? Uh, the first thing that I would say, two things. The first thing I would say, and this will sound very cliche, but I, I mean it in a sincere way. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Uh, it will give you perspective. Uh, going back to what I said about we are primarily citizens of the kingdom. Our time here right now in these crises can seem overwhelming. There will come a time when we will look back on it and wonder why we thought it was such a long and serious ordeal. Hmm. Uh, the perspective of eternity, Paul had it really, really good. Seeking just a fraction of that perspective that he had, where he counts all things as loss, considers them as rubbish, right? Compared to the riches that will be his in Christ. To the degree that we can have that perspective, it, it, will, it will make these trials of this present age diminish and it will magnify Christ. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing, if that's love of God, then the other thing would be love of neighbor. Love your people, serve your people. Uh, Moses put up with more than any of us are probably going to put up yeah. with. And he kept pleading for his people. He kept being their shepherd. He pleaded with God to be merciful to them, uh, to spare them. Yes, he got frustrated, but uh, he continued to serve. He continued to be faithful. And uh, he probably went through more than we're going to. So just keep loving your people. Pour yourself into, into the people of your church and the life of your church. Be a member of your church as well as being a pastor of your church. You know, be involved. Don't be afraid to clean a toilet. Don't be afraid to pick up a broom. You know, Be a part of the larger thing. A pastor has a unique calling. I get that. But don't be above the other things that go on in the church. 
be a part of it, be integrated within it. Really good words. I wasn't expecting all that. That's really good. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you.